Hi, friends. Listen, I know Father's Day was a couple weeks ago, but I got a great dad joke for you, okay? So I told my own dad, I said, I want to be an archaeologist when I grow up. I asked him, what do you think? And you know what he said? He said, it sounds like your future is in ruins. Now, if you don't think that's funny, that's your problem, okay? Here's a serious question for you, though. Have you ever wondered about your future? Like, seriously, like, where's my life going? Does my life have purpose? Is it all part of a bigger scheme or plan? We all wonder those things. We all do. And sometimes when we look at our lives and we see things like, you know, our our screwed up families or unfortunate or painful things that hit us in the face sometimes, it's easy to think, man, my future is in ruins. Or some people, when they ask the question, they just, they just, run after money or success or popularity or the things that they believe will make for a great life, only to arrive at the future and wake up one day and realize, man, I was chasing an illusion. None of this really even matters. So the question remains, how do you have a great life? Today we're beginning a new summer series. It's called Have a Great Life, all right? And we're going to answer that question because everybody wants to know how to have a great life. And It's just that the way you get there isn't what most people think. We're going to follow the the crazy plot twists of a guy named Joseph, whose story is told in the Old Testament of the Bible. And it's kind of this riches to rags to riches story where we find this guy. His life starts out where he's thrown in a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery, who told him, have a great life. (laughs) It looks like for Joseph, his life and his future was in ruins. But God didn't forget about Joseph. And Joseph didn't forget about God. And it turns out that's the most important thing in having a great life. Which means that you and I can have a great life too. Turns out a great life isn't one without any troubles and with just a bunch of ease and comfort. The greatest lives come out of great struggle. When we're skating by in the, in the high times, the easy times, we all know it's so easy to forget God in those times. But it's the tough places, isn't it? It's where we grow and we learn and we develop our trust in God. That's why I think this crazy coronavirus time and all this racial unrest we've been experiencing and other problems you might have going on in your life, they're not just a streak of bad luck. They're not just like an obstacle between you and the good life. In fact, they're an opportunity for you to grow into the kind of person you really need to be if you want to have a great life. So we're going to look at Joseph's story and your story and my story, and you're going to see that Joseph, like all of us, had a pretty unbelievable string of struggles. But still, he found courage in the face of cruelty. That's a great life. He displayed integrity and purity and faithfulness when facing extreme temptation. That's a great life. Even though he was mistreated and and hated, he had this largeness of soul, this sort of depth of character in him that allowed him to be bigger than just getting even or using his power to get revenge. Instead of being driven by a grudge, this guy was driven by grace. When people failed him, he offered forgiveness, and even those who tried to kill him, he was kind to them. That's a great life. In fact, when you look at Joseph you're going to maybe say, like I've said many times, man, he reminds me a little bit of Jesus. Because there's this strength in him that we can all admire and aspire to. Because your life and my life, like Joseph's, is full of ups and downs. Times when it looks like things are awesome and times when it looks like 
You're an archaeologist and your future is in ruins. Same with Joseph. Same with you and me. But through it all, listen, he trusted that God was with him. And if you can learn to trust God when you're in a pit at the absolute bottom and remain faithful and humble and trust God when you're at the top, at the pinnacle, and just remember God, walk with God, see him, sense him, trust him. If you can do that, you can have a great life no matter what's happening. So every week we're going to pull a kind of practical but usually very surprising truth from Joseph's life in the Bible. And we're jumping in today with this one, talking about how a great life will have family problems. All right, so this is good news because I know there's a couple of you watching uh, participating with the service right now who come from pretty messed up families. I've seen your families, I know. I'm kidding, okay, because I know we all actually come from messed up families. Turns out that's the only kind of family there is. Every family has some problems, even though some are more obvious than others. Some are kind of quiet, uh, dysfunctions behind closed doors. But, 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 you know, we all have family struggles, and they impact our life. You can't deny that, but you don't have to be defined by it, all right? Now, before we jump into the story and look at Joseph's family... I want to point out a a big truth that we're going to kind of cling to through this whole series, and I hope it really changes and helps the way you think. Living life through this lens I'm going to tell you about right now changes everything. It really does. And a lot of it comes from Romans 8.28. It goes like this. It says, and we know, meaning we're confident. You don't have to wonder about this. You know, absolutely, that in all things... No matter what happens in my life, in other words, the good stuff, the bad stuff, all of it, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Do you know that God is at work in all of your life, kind of weaving his pattern through it, even if you can't see it? When you learn to see and to sense and to trust the hand of God at work in everything, you're on your way to a great life. It's called the providence of God. You can think about it this way. Two stories are always unfolding at the same time on two different levels. There's a lower story and an upper story, all right? The lower story is the one that's being written in our daily lives. It's the stuff that happens every day, the stuff we do. It's told from like a six-foot perspective. That's the horizontal look at things about the here and now. Paying bills, you're taking the dog out, you're playing pickleball, you're running through the sprinkler, taking a new job, having an argument, mailing a letter, dealing with sadness, getting over a cold, your wallet gets stolen, you go through the coronavirus, you hate putting on your mask when you go into Walmart. That's all lower story stuff that happens in our life from an earthly perspective. And some people, by the way, they think that's all there is. They're going to try as hard as they can to have a great life based on that lower story. So that means you're left to try to be successful in the ways that everybody tells you you're supposed to. Try to just make the circumstances go as good as you can. Make some money, avoid problems, that kind of thing. But here's what the Bible says from start to finish and what we see in Joseph's life and really in every other person's life in the Bible. And that is that there's more to your story than meets the eye. There's not just a lower story. There's an upper story. And the upper story is what God's up to. 
It's the vertical perspective where you learn to see God at work in and through the everyday events in the lower story. God's writing this larger story and he's weaving our events, our life, our happenings into one great story. And we know it. We know God is at work in all things. We know that God is working out his purposes and his plans in our lower story lives, even if you can't see it or recognize it at the time. And maybe the coolest thing about this truth The providence of God is that God is truly able to use everything from our life. The good stuff, the hard stuff, the bad stuff, the failures, the pain, the struggle, all of it. His guiding hand is there working it together for good. That's why Joseph could say, after looking back at his life, after a whole bunch of stuff that seemed really bad at the time, he says, no, Genesis 50 says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And you can know the same thing, that God is at work taking every circumstance of your life, even the part when you feel like your future's in ruins. The thing that seems horrible at the time and know that God is at work in all of it, guiding it to this more beautiful upper story. And I hope you know, this isn't just something that was true in Joseph's life. He's doing the same thing in our lives. And as we learn to see and sense and trust God's hand at work in our story. Know that he's at work in all things. Know that there's more than meets the eye to our story. Your life won't seem so random and out of control or up in the air. You'll know that God is never flustered or flummoxed, and he's working all things together for your good. Now, one of the greatest tests for all of us is our families. And if your family has some problems, you might feel better after I show you a few things about Joseph's family, okay? Now, a lot of time I think we think that Bible families are these, you know, icons of virtue who kind of are stellar examples. If you think that, you really haven't read the Bible. Here's the deal. Back up. God created the world and it all got messed up, infested with sin. He said, I'm going to call out a people who will become a nation, who will be a blessing to save the world and draw everyone back to myself. That's the big upper story plan. And it started with a man named Abraham through his son, Isaac. And Isaac had a sneaky son named Jacob. His very nickname was the deceiver because he was a sneaky little cheat who, who lied to his dad and gypped his brother Esau out of his birthright and ran off with the, with the blessing. Talk about not getting your family off on the right foot. (laughs) Listen, young people, your actions and habits now will have an effect on your life later. Trust me. Jacob falls in love with a woman named Rachel and asked her father, Laban, hey, can I marry Rachel? He said, sure, if you work for me for seven years. Well, Jacob loved Rachel so much that he did it. But on Jacob's wedding day, Laban pulled a fast one and made a little switcheroo. And Jacob ended up marrying Rachel's not so beautiful sister, Leah. The deceiver had been deceived. But he wanted Rachel so bad that he worked for another seven years and he married her also. So you can see this family is not getting off to a great start. Now, in the meantime, Jacob had six other sons and a daughter by Leah and four more sons by some other handmaidens. And then finally, in his old age, he had a baby and that was Joseph. Now, after working for his father-in-law for like 20 years, Jacob finally says, I got to go back home. I got to go to Canaan. That's the promised land. And so he goes to Laban and they play a couple more tricks on each other. But finally, Jacob and his family make their way back to the land of Canaan. But not without more tragedy. On the way there, some men grabbed Jacob's daughter, Dinah, and raped her. And her brothers plotted this horrible revenge plot. And they slaughtered all the men of that city and carried off their wealth and their women and their children. 
And the father, Jacob, hears about all this and he's angry. But apparently not angry about what happened to his daughter or, or, or even the brutal revenge that his sons had taken out, but, but on his public relations image with the rest of the people of the land. You begin to see these character flaws pop up in Jacob, Joseph's father, that begin to affect and infiltrate the whole family. They're not even home yet, but they're almost home at a place called Bethel when Jacob's wife, Rachel, gives birth to one more and what would be the last son. And his name was, check it out, Benjamin. That's my name. He's the last of the tribe. I am, I am also the last of our four kids. I've got an older brother named Joseph as well. My dad is not Jacob, but he does call me the last of the tribe. But there's actually more tragedy here. Um, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. So here's this woman that Jacob had waited years to marry and herself who had waited years to bear children on the doorstep of their hometown, finally ready to begin their new life and boom, she's gone. So they had this real deep loss and grief and while they're still grieving, it gets worse. More sexual impropriety as Reuben has sex with one of the, the mother of one of his half-brothers. It's a form of incest. And it's right here that we begin to see another problem, and that's the pattern in Jacob of passivity. He was totally passive. He never did anything. When he heard about the rape of his daughter, he did nothing to protect or console her. He didn't do anything to hold his sons accountable. And when his own son committed incest with with this woman, he did nothing again. He didn't step in. He didn't guide his children. Parents need to provide more than a roof and food. They they need to provide guidance and standards and expectations and consequences and accountability. And Jacob didn't do any of that. So here's a family with deceit and anger and revenge and murder and rebellion and incest and a father with a weak, passive heart who won't do anything about any of it. And on top of that, Jacob plays favorites. Joseph is his little pet. And all the brothers begin to develop this big rivalry and contemptuous jealousy. And again, Jacob does nothing but feed it. And you thought your family was messed up. And this is the home that Joseph is born into. Not the healthiest of environments, to say the least. Not a great place to to raise a boy. And, And then this favoritism thing is eventually what does Joseph in. You go to Genesis chapter 37, verses 3 and 4, and it says that Jacob just flat out loved Joseph more than the others because he'd been born to him in his old age. So one day he makes a special gift for Joseph. It's a coat of many colors, a beautiful, elaborate robe. But it says his brothers just hated Joseph because their father loved him more. And they couldn't even say a kind word to him. Hey, I know. Kids, gather around. I want to give a present to Joseph. Let's all watch as he opens his beautiful robe. How do you expect that to go over? One commentator says here that the language on this thing represents a robe that probably had sleeves that came down and and down to the ankles. In other words, it's not a work robe. It's this fancy ornamented, you know, kind of like like sending someone, you know, to a construction site with with a full mink coat. You wouldn't do it. In those days, a work outfit was, was short sleeve and short tunic so you could move around and get stuff done. But Jacob gets Joseph, his favorite son, this Armani robe, which was a sign of nobility. In other words, Joseph, you don't have to work. Now, the rest of you get to work. So you can see how angry these guys are. They're already filled with deceit and jealousy and this favoritism. It's a powder keg, and no wonder they hated him so much they couldn't even speak a kind word to him. You ever been in a relationship like that, so filled with tension that nobody even tries to speak to one another? 
The icing on the cake comes when Joseph has these dreams and he says to his brothers, hey, guess what? I had a dream and we're out in the field and my sheep stands up and yours all bow down to me. Isn't that cool? And it's just what older brothers want to hear, right? Wrong. They just, they're like, what are you saying? You're going to reign over us? And it says in verse 8 that they just hated him even more because of the dreams and the way he kept talking about them. And if that weren't enough, he has another dream, this one where the whole world, including his father, is going to bow down to him. And, and again, it, it just makes all of their life miserable with all this jealousy. And finally, one day, Jacob sends Joseph out to go meet his brothers out in the field. In a way, he sets them up for this. And things are a powder keg and ready to explode. They see him coming and they say, let's kill this little dreamer boy right now. We'll throw him in a pit. We'll make up a story, but we've got to get rid of this guy. One of the brothers, Reuben, says, no, you know... What if we don't kill him and just throw him into the pit, teach him a lesson? He was going to circle back and rescue him later. That was his intention. So they threw him in the pit and they're eating a dinner and on come some traitors, the Ishmaelites. And Judah, another brother, says, hey, you know what? Wait a second. We're not going to get any money out of this if we kill him or just leave him in a hole. So let's sell him. And they did. They sold their brother for 20 pieces of silver, what you would have paid for like a handicapped slave in those days. Then they kill a goat. They got a whole plan here. They smear Joseph's pretty little robe in the blood of the goat. And there's no DNA testing, right? So they just go back to Jacob and say, I don't know, looks like Joseph's been torn to pieces. And of course, Jacob believes them. He's built his whole family on deception and they learn from the best. And again, the deceiver is deceived and he falls into deep grief. Because as far as he knows, his beloved son Joseph is dead. And meanwhile, those traders who bought Joseph took him all the way over to Egypt where they sold Joseph to an officer of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the captain of the palace guard, and his name was Potiphar. Now, that's a lot of stuff, but it's enough for you to see this isn't exactly the Brady Bunch we're talking about. This is a family with so many problems generational sin patterns embedded so deeply that they're just already just like, well, this is just the way our family does things. Sometimes things get so deeply embedded that we don't even recognize them or think we have a choice in how we behave. Your family influence can't be denied, but you don't have to be defined by it. And I want to suggest to you that it's worth thinking about our own lives for a moment, like our own families, where we came from, where we are now, whether you're single or married, the circle that you would call your family unit, whether you have kids or grandkids or you're on your own, each of us comes from a family and is part of some system. And it hopefully has given us some good things, some good habits, virtues, and strengths, character traits maybe. And we've absorbed those and they've made us better. But you know what else? Every family, even the best, passes on some bad stuff too. Because everyone, even in the best of homes, has weaknesses and blind spots, sin patterns. I wonder if you have maybe made peace with some, some of the bad stuff, some of the sin patterns that were just handed to you and you've just accepted it. Like, that's just the way we do things. I wonder if you have maybe uncritically adopted some of the same unhealthy traits that Joseph's family had. I mean, for example, his family had lots of deceit lies baked right into things is there a habit of deception lurking in your life you know when spouses keep secrets when kids lie to their parents 
when siblings withhold information in a misleading way, when we say we're one way in the home, but we behave another way outside the home, when we're willing to lie, to get the deal, to get ahead, to close the sale, we're sowing seeds that are going to grow up to choke you. Ephesians 4 says, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth. Growing up in every way to be more like Christ. You can't start loving till you stop lying. Speaking the truth and loving go hand in hand. So God's people need to live and walk in the light, not in the dark, murky shades of gray in life. And as unpleasant, as difficult as it might be, speak the truth in love. It's called growing up. It's immature to lie. Grown-ups who are mature speak truth. So give your family and friends the gift of telling the truth. It's how you become more Christ-like, who Jesus was the truth. A few verses later in Ephesians, it puts it even more boldly and just says, stop telling lies. That's not how we do. Not if you're God's people. Let us tell our neighbors the truth for we're parts of the same body. You got kids watching you. You got people depending on truth coming out of you. And it only hurts your own soul. And lies always surface. Keep your conscience clear and root out deception by telling the truth in love. You know, there's another problem deep in the bones of this family, and it's revenge. Did you see it? I wonder, is there a habit of revenge lurking in your life? We may not, like, slaughter our enemies or murder them like Jacob's son did, but we might say things like, well, I don't get mad, I get even. Or we know how to give someone, you know, a kind of passive-aggressive, silent treatment, or angry outbursts, or sarcasm, or we go on the attack to put people in their place, make life miserable for them. When patterns of revenge repeat in a family, you end up with angry people who are fearfully paranoid, always looking over their shoulder, wondering, you know, who's out to get me? First Peter 3 says, don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay, repay evil with blessing because that's what you're called to so that you might inherit a blessing. This is a radical teaching that, I'll be very honest with you, I don't see a lot of Christians practice. We love to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we're more attracted to and we like. A lot of people apparently don't like this verse or ones like 1 Thessalonians 5 that says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else. I wonder, how different would your attitudes be? Would my family be? Would our social media posts be if we practice Christianity like the Bible teaches right here? Or when Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. And we say, well, okay, fine, Jesus. Unless I'm really ticked. Unless they really offend me. Unless I don't agree with their ideology or their politics. And then I'm going to flame them and let them have it and teach them a lesson. And nobody walks on me that way. What if in our family lives, our social life, our real everyday life, we practice Romans 12, 17 that says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's not how Jacob's family lived. But what's interesting is Joseph had his own choices to make. He couldn't deny that revenge was in his family, but he didn't have to let that revenge define him. And if revenge and getting even is the way your family does things, it doesn't have to define you either. You can move in a new direction within the family of God. That's how you have a great life.
deception, revenge. And what about another huge problem I see in Jacob and in a lot of homes today? I'm talking about the problem of passivity. Is passivity lurking in your life? Passivity is a way of failing to step up and to be the person God really created you to be. When we shirk responsibilities, when we refuse to step out courageously, when we don't care enough about the people around us, the world around us, to become involved and to be part of the answer, to use our God-given energy and gifts to do something for good, then we're passive and it's less than fully human. It's less than noble. It's less than fulfilling. In the garden, the first man, Adam, fell short in this way. He was weak, he was absent, he was cowardly when he should have stepped up. The serpent was there, remember, and tempted Eve. And you think, well, where's Adam? Well, maybe he's off hunting or getting the grill ready. I don't know. Surely if he'd been there, he would have stepped in to protect Eve, you know, lopped off the head of the snake or something. But you know what Genesis says? It says the woman saw the fruit, she took of it and ate of it and gave some of it to her husband who was right there with him, with her, and he ate. Where was Adam? He was right there, just standing there, passively. She's in a crisis. Something big is at stake. He, he, he could have stepped in, but, 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 but no, he just stood there. He did nothing. He went flat, and he thought, well, maybe this will roll by. It'll be no big deal. Guess what? That was a big deal, and we're all still paying the price, but passivity doesn't figure that out until it's too late. And that's what happens in lives when dads are passive. When moms are passive, when mentors of youth are passive, when leaders and pastors don't step up, when we're not strong and positive and assertive in good godly ways, we're, we're, we're just living in Adam's shadow, standing there. Friends, there's injustice in the world. There's kids who need role models. There's our own families. There's racism. There's poverty. There's lonely people. What are you doing? It's not enough to stand there and to hope that maybe no one will notice that you're not involved. Not if you're a godly person and you want to have a great life. Churches are longing to fulfill their purpose, but too many are just standing there, losing themselves in earthly pursuits that don't add up to anything. I think it's sad that so many people can be decisive and focused and effective when it comes to choosing fantasy football drafts, but we're passive on some of the things that matter most. Dads, get involved with your kids' lives, with their needs, their feelings, their hopes, their fears. Moms, step out of your insecurity long enough to see that God has gifted you with what you need to be as the mother you're called to be. Young people, take responsibility for your life. Don't play the victim. Don't blame someone. Work hard. Get in there. Bring yourself to the table. We need you. You know, Jacob's a horrible example in this, honestly, but you know who's a great example? is Jesus, and eventually Joseph. But Jesus rejected passivity. He accepted responsibility because he cared more about God's will than his own. John 17 says, Jesus says, I've accomplished the work you've given me to do. Wow. Imagine being able to say that. If passivity is lurking inside you or your family, people around you are paying a price. Like Jacob, you might have unruly kids or a trail of relationships that fail because you don't step up and patch things up or families that are floundering for lack of leadership. Ask God to motivate and encourage you to step up in exactly the ways God is calling you to. Well, deception, revenge, passivity, 
And so much more were involved in this family. Favoritism, jealousy, hatred, abandonment, incest, abuse, mistreatment. It's a lot of, well, crap. And I use that word intentionally because I'm trying to point out what God can do with that is use it as fertilizer. God can use your family crap as fertilizer to grow something amazing, to produce good fruit, beautiful things. God used Joseph's messed up family garbage and sowed seeds right in the middle of it. And out of it, you know what grew as we're going to see in future weeks? Forgiveness, reconciliation, strength, character, blessing, grace. The same things you want in your life if you want to have a great life. Out of that nasty manure can come beautiful things. Out of Joseph's life came the tribe of Judah. And out of Judah came our Lord Jesus Christ. The worst family garbage in the world becomes fertilizer God can use to accomplish his will, and upper story. So I bet your problem is that your family has some problems, just like Joseph's. Well, you're not alone. Listen, your failures aren't final, and it, 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 it's going def- to be something you can't deny, but it doesn't have to define you. I want you to meet my friend Sarah Borley. From the moment I met her, I really enjoyed our friendship, but I learned recently there's a whole lot more to her story, and I'd like for you to hear it right now. My name is Sarah, and when it comes to family pain, I've certainly had my share. I married my high school boyfriend who happened to struggle with depression. After our daughter was stillborn, his depression spiraled into heavy drug use, which ultimately led to his overdose on Christmas morning. Not long after his death, I fell asleep at the wheel driving home from work one night. I should have died, but I didn't, and the doctor said if I made it, I would never walk again. I spent a year in a wheelchair and two years in therapy, relearning how to walk again. My injuries were so great, I was discharged from the military, and my dream of a lifelong career came to a sudden end. Somewhere along the way after that, I met my next husband at church. He was a preacher's son, and we decided to go to Bible college together. It seemed as though things were turning around. But then, I was diagnosed with cancer, and I had to have a hysterectomy not allowing me to have children of my own. This was extremely tough for me because I wanted children so very badly. I had hoped that adoption would be my answer, so we started the process. But a few years later, family pain would hit me yet again. This time, my husband decided he no longer wanted to be married, and he had an affair. Just five days after he left me, my adoption social worker called with the news of a baby for us. But when I told the birth mom my husband had just left me, she rejected my home for a placement. Within one week, I lost my spouse and the child I had waited years for. The pain was great. To add to the stress of all of it, that same week, the pipes burst in my house and it was literally raining in my living room. I remember just sitting there on the floor and weeping. I'd be lying to you if I said this wasn't extremely difficult, because it was. But today, I can wholeheartedly say that God was with me. He was at work through all of it. 37 surgeries later, my body is rebuilt and restored. This past March, I celebrated seven years of marriage. And I can say I've seen God is truly at work in all things for our good. I've had people tell me I was like a modern day Job. 
so I've always held tightly to the verses from Job 42, verses 10 and 12. In 10 it says, after Job prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. This verse was key for me because I realized before Job was restored, he had to pray for those who caused him pain or doubted God's sovereignty. The key to his restoration was putting others first and praying for them. I had been deeply wounded by so many people. I had to decide if I was gonna let that fester in my life and allow it to make me bitter. But I didn't wanna live that way. And I knew I had to soften my heart and forgive them before my own restoration could occur. And I love that verse 12 goes on to say, the Lord blessed the later part of Job's life more than the first. I really held on to this verse during some of the toughest moments of my life. I used to think the latter part of my life would be the time in heaven and how that would be so much more of a blessing than my time here on earth. Because let's face it, my earlier years, they were pretty rough. But God had other plans. I've come to realize that the stage of my life I'm in now is so, so very blessed. God has truly blessed the latter part of my life with a faithful spouse and two wonderful stepkids. And it's all an answer to so many prayers, but not in the way I planned it. And all because I never lost hope. You know, God's given me the ability to have a good attitude most days and the privilege of serving on mountain staff as the special needs pastor, making sure that everyone is included and hears about Jesus. It brings me so much joy. And I just want to say, if God can be at work in my life through all the junk, all the loss, and all the mess in my family over the years, then God can be in work at your life too. And I know God wants to bless you. God wants to heal you. He wants to help you no matter what's going on. So I just say, don't get discouraged by the stuff going on around you. Trust that God is truly in work in all things. Trust that God's hand is guiding you and helping you even in the hard times, even when you can't see it. Just hang in there and hold on to Jesus.